0: I have advocated for seizing every possible opportunity to allow patients to wake up right after intubation so as to prevent delirium altogether. In most cases, the less sedation a patient receives, the easier it will be for the ICU team and the patient. Yet not every intubation is in a controlled environment with the opportunity to discuss intubation and sedation with the patient before and have the family and team present afterwards to help them acclimate to the ET tube and ventilator. The cases in which patients are intubated in the field or ED, and especially when they spend hours or longer in the ED or in transportation to our ICU, can really impact the rest of their ICU stay. Just as choice of sedation, indication for sedation, combination and doses of sedation fluctuate drastically between ICUs, They can also vary among critical care transportation, EMS, and ERs. This podcast primarily focuses on the ICU side, but it is vital for the critical care side to really understand sedation and their domino effect so that we can better collaborate with our colleagues in other departments. We can also better prepare for and treat delirium when a patient has been given sedation, especially benzodiazepines, before arriving to our ICU. If our team has the goal of helping patients be awake, calm and mobile on the ventilator, then we will quickly wean them off of sedation as soon as they arrive to us, if already intubated somewhere else. We need to know what medications they have been given and for how long. For example, if a patient has been intubated with five milligrams or more of midazolam in the field, then on a midazolam or propofol drip for a few hours in the ED, We need to factor in those medications when they emerge from sedation with agitation, consider the following for every one milligram of lorazepam. There is a 20% increased risk of delirium within the following 24 hours for every one milligram of midazolam. There is a seven to 8% increase in risk of delirium. This will impact how they come out of sedation. When we understand that they are at a 35% higher risk of having delirium because of the five milligram midazolam bolus they received at intubation and then additional sedation during transportation, we can be ready and eager to help them come out of that confusion and agitation through communication, family, and even mobility. We can anticipate the causes of their response and seek to actually treat them. If we are unaware of what they have received and consider the agitation we witness as a, quote, failed sedation vacation, unquote, and then rush to resume and even increase the sedation, we have buckled them into the delirium ride and set them up for even worse and prolonged delirium, higher risk of death and hospital acquired disability. What our colleagues do before the ICU and how we respond upon arrival to the ICU in regards to sedation, greatly impact our patient's survival and quality of life. As a European version of the ABCDEF bundle, eCash protocol states, early comfort with minimal sedation should be provided as a clinical priority on a par with early resuscitation, early sepsis management, and an early lung protective ventilation strategy. So avoiding sedation and those choices upon arrival to our ICU are just as important as which antibiotic and how much fluid we give them during those critical early phases of critical illness. Fortunately, those of us on the ICU side are not the only ones realizing the role we play in patient mortality and suffering with our sedation choices. Even paramedic medicine is also having an awakening and movement to apply current research. I am excited to have an EMS expert share with us his expertise and work. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourself?
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So my name is uh, Jeff Poland. I'm a uh, paramedic in the, the U.S. I practice kind of all over and just about to start medical school.
0: Excellent. And we got connected because I think you had made some comments on a Facebook group about benzodiazepine use. I think it was a critical care group and a provider had listed some of their sedation protocols, something like that. And we both said, why is that on there? Why? I don't remember if lorazepam was still on there or if it was just birth said, but we were, we were both pretty taken back by that. And we started chatting.
1: Correct. Correct. You know, I, I think it was one of those. Yeah. I I forget exactly which group it was, but yeah, you and I both had the (laughs) the same thought, you know, okay, well, why are we still, you know, listing like like a, like you said, I can't, can't remember which Benzo it was. Why are we still listing this Benzo as a sedative that's appropriate for use, you know, in, in intubated in, in ICU patients?
0: Yeah, it was, it was nice to find validation, but we found that you have a very different perspective in the ICU world, as I'm talking to people around the country, they're saying, well, patients are showing up delirious because I I'm often referring to the situation, in which we're explaining to patients prior to intubation, that they're needing to be intubated. Like a lot of these COVID patients or patients that were intubated in the field and come and we take off sedation right away. But what it sounds like people are experiencing with patients that are already intubated either in the field or in the ED, they're already delirious. And you gave some really interesting insights into how we're using benzodiazepines in the field. And there's a study that shows that for every one milligram of Ativan, a patient is 20% more likely to develop delirium within the following 24 hours. So we are using benzodiazepines in the field and what kind of contexts or what kind of scenarios are benzodiazepines being used?
1: Yeah, no. And then that's a, that's a, a great point that you make right there. And a lot of, you know, kind of what I, what I see for my understanding is you work primarily in a, in a tertiary care facility, Correct. Correct. Yeah, so a lot of my experience has been either uh, intubation in the field or picking up from some of the smaller, either the critical access or even smaller than that hospitals, where you know the the care and the sedation and the the intubation that they get is widely variable. So you know, on one end of the expect uh, the spectrum, I'll I'll show up and. It's been a patient who has been intubated and I show up and there's just, you know, puddles of tears in their eyes. And I start talking to the staff and, oh no, they're fine. We, we induced with 10 of VEC and I just gave them another 10, 10 minutes ago. They don't need anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, or you've well, got else. the opposite side, nothing else. Yeah. That's, that happens more often than you you'd think, unfortunately, and that's an entirely, entirely different topic, but, but
0: that's important to um, recognize. Or,
1: Oh, it's absolutely important to recognize and immediately I'll usually typically reach for the the, the ketamine, but a lot of you know my colleagues will recognize that kind of a scenario or you know, they'll even do the innovation themselves and they'll immediately reach for something with which they're familiar. And there aren't a lot of EMS services, whether it's critical care interfacility or 911, or a mixture of both that are used to some of the more you know typical sedative hypnotics that might be a little bit more appropriate to the intubated patient, you know, your uh, propofol, dexmedetomidine, ketamine, things like that. And and typically because most, you know, either family practice physicians working in the ER or ER physicians that maybe are, are a ways out of residency, they're, they're really familiar with Versed. So a lot of times you'll see, okay, we're, we're going to intubate, give them five of Versed, 200 of sucks. Or you know, it may be uh, atomide followed by sucks. and then after that, it's either a versed drip or intermittent versed boluses for for sedation. And it's just a lot of people are very comfortable using the drug because they use it for seizures, they use it for you know some of the more milder you know conscious sedations and things like that 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 we do more in the in the ER and more in the emergency realm and you know, you ask them to, to do something like, you know, initiate dexmedetomidine or initiate a propofol drip, especially with somebody who maybe isn't as hemodynamically stable as, as we'd like to see. And the fallback is always, you know, something that they're familiar with, and that's going to be either Ativan or, or Versed and typically without uh, any sort of analgesia as well.
0: Wow. And why is that concerning to you? Why does that upset you?
1: Oh, this is absolutely concerning. You had brought up, you know, the study about, uh, you know, every milligram of of Ativan. The one that I, I like to, I, I like to reference is the one that found that, you know, any, even a single administration of a benzodiazepine was found to be an independent predictor for ICU delirium. And we know how bad ICU delirium is. We know how it dramatically increases morbidity and mortality. And it's something I think we all should, should strive to avoid, and a lot of, what I see from, you know, my colleagues is, oh, well, we, we know that they're, they're under sedated and there's, there's a, a couple of different reasons for, for that I'll get into in, in a bit, but, you know, we know that they're under sedated. We know that we need to give them, give them something. So, you know, fentanyl and Versed works really well. So we're just going to, you know, I'm comfortable with that. I'm used to that. So we're just going to, to continue it and then they can do whatever they want in the, idea. which, I can I can understand that that line of thinking but it's flawed in a way because I, like, like you said and like I said there there's even the single administration of the these benzos can can have I mean, I don't want to say catastrophic, but almost catastrophic yeah. downstream effects, you know, for you in the ICU. And that's just not something that we see, not something that we deal with. So it's not something that's in the forefront of our mind. It's something we see, okay, cool. This works great right now. So we're just going to continue, you know, continue to do this. And we don't see that negative downstream effect.
0: It's like this whole chain of dominoes that are all set up the second a patient comes to us and maybe ICU's. Somewhere towards the beginning, in the middle, L tax at the end, and there's a whole another maze after acute care, right? Absolutely. And you, as the EMS, or even in the ED, you hold that first that one domino, and you hit it. And then let's say they get up to the ICU. So in the walk and ICU, if someone comes in and they're on versed, so let's say that was started in an outside facility, coming on versed, we're going to take it off. Cause we want to keep them awake. Right. But they're going to come out cuckoo. They're going to come out, agitated, thrashing yet. The wake can walk in ICU has the understanding, the culture of, Hey, clearly they're delirious. We're not going to give them something. That's going to make them more delirious and make them delirious for longer. So we're going to keep that off. That's our culture. We are Mm going to be super annoyed that you made them delirious because that wasn't nice, (laughs) right? That was, that was in our mind. That's a cruel thing to do to patients. And, a really inconvenient thing to do to us as a team, but that is an exceptional team. Most ICUs, if they do, if they do a sedation vacation, after you've started a first head drip or given five milligrams of Ativan, whatever, when we, they see that agitation, they're just going to turn that sedation right back on higher, deeper, longer. They're going to be more determined and whatever agitation they saw upon admission or whenever they took it off, that they're gonna have that labeled on that patient. So the next shift's gonna know this is a wild patient. Keep that sedation on, keep it higher. So now those dominoes keep on going. And now we've all signed them up for delirium, cognitive deficits, infection, higher risk of mortality, longer time in the ventilator, longer time in the hospital. I mean, it, but if if the ED had let them wake up after intubation, how different would that have been? Where we'd prevented delirium. And then that patient rolls in and they are themselves, the whole rest of the team, everyone knows that this patient is okay and safe.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's super interesting, you know, kind of. Like that, that would be the ideal world is if, you know, even if they're, you know, in the little, you know, two bed EV out in the middle of nowhere, even if they were, you know, appropriately intubated with, you know, something short acting given appropriate analgesia and allowed to, you know, kind of become more cognizant had benzos withheld. There's a lot that goes into being able to keep somebody awake and comfortable on, on the vent. And one of the things, you know, as, as EMS, one of the things that we, we deal with is a lack of lack of budget and we can, we can almost break that, that, you know, that, that chain because Once they, once they get moved off of, you know, your guys's I don't know how many, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollar ventilator over to, you know, hopefully nobody's still using, you know, pneumatic driven things, you know, like, like an auto vent 4,000 or, you know, even, you know, even some of the, the more common transport vents that, you know, may only run five or $10,000, those things aren't comfortable. Mm -hmm. So What we end up seeing is we end up seeing somebody who is happy and comfortable on their, you know, real fancy, real gentle ICU style ventilator. And we move them over onto ours and they can't tolerate it. This is really prevalent. So patients who are going to LTAC, you know, they may need, you know, they they may be able to be off the vent for for a little while, but they just need, you know, some some support intermittently. I'm sure you've had those those kind of patients, you know, particularly your trach ones. Trach when not really, that's well, I mean, that probably goes that.
0: when you have them up and walking and they don't atrophy, then they then. are able to be extubated and they walk out the doors. So it is, but. Uh, But at that point, if someone's transferring to to LTAC, you would hope that they would be off sedation by then, but that's often not the case, correct? Or they're just barely coming
1: off. They're they're either, they're just barely coming off or they're on Mm -hmm. no sedation, but they're able to tolerate that vent. And then I go to move them onto mine and all of a sudden they just can't tolerate it. They become super uncomfortable. I mean, to the point where. It's pretty much okay. Well, if you if you want this person to go to LTAC with me, they either need to be able to manage off the vent, or I need to either sedate or you know, give them some sort of, of analgesia. My preferred method is some fentanyl rather than sedation. But, you know, if honestly, it, it all depends on the culture. It depends on the sending doc. It depends on the receiving mm-hmm. doc it's so many things, but more often than not, it's, oh yeah, they need to go give them a milligram or two milligrams of Ativan or give them two and a half or five of her said. And all of a sudden we're, we're either starting down that delirium road again, or it's just not super effective. And that's kind of one of those, one, one of those things that You know that—that's people going to LTAC. So you know you throw on somebody who's already maybe a little bit delirious, or somebody who's new to being on the vent, and they're tolerating things okay, even if they're on something like a propofol drip or you know some sort of appropriate sedation in the ICU or the ER that we're picking them up from. When you move them into the transport environment, man, things are just. They're they're going from their nice, comfy, quiet, you know, organized, everybody's in a calm voice, there's no weird vibrations, there's no weird smells, there's no weird sounds. Now all of a sudden they're going out into the harsh daylight where temperatures maybe not you know controlled as as well as we'd like it to. There's road noises, there's vibrations, and all of a sudden you know I used to think it was just okay. The you know all of a sudden these patients they need more sedation in the transport environment because of just all the extra stimulus they just can't deal with it. And after talking with you a little bit, I'm wondering, and, and I don't have any any research one way or the other, but I'm wondering if we're not just seeing a manifestation of some delirium already and of course as they're delirious what's the first thing we're going to do we're you know maybe going to up them a little bit on the uh, propofol but as we have them on the propofol their pressure is going to drop so oh well their pressure drops the propofol i'm going to turn propofol down here i'm going to give them two and a half or five of her set and it's yeah that that This is, this is one of those things and and I used to, when I, when I first started doing critical care, this is, you know, these are things that I thought, okay, yeah, you know, sure. No big deal. This is just how it's done. You know, you, you've got a patient who's agitated. The transport environment is definitely more stimulating. We need to be, you know, nice to these patients. I don't want them fighting the vent I want them to be nice and comfortable. And then when I actually started, you know, a couple of years ago, when I started taking a look at what these benzos are actually doing, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, I've kind of modified my approach a little bit to, you know, somebody who may be a little bit delirious, maybe it is, you know, some adverse effects of the the transport environment. I I really don't know, but, you know, my, my approach now is increase in the, in the opioids and try to either bring the sedation down a little bit or, you know, stop benzos if they've got the benzos going, but, but I do just about everything I can now to avoid using benzos and, and go with an analgesia first approach.
0: Oh, thank goodness you do up to 80, at least maybe up to, or at least 80% of ICU patients have delirium. And there's so many things that cause that, right. But we know that prolonged deep sedation causes delirium. So I'm imagining these patients that are traits and I'm sure the majority of them are because of prolonged time limit later. And the majority of that is because they have atrophied, because they were deeply mm-hmm. sedated. So it sounds like a lot of these patients that you're transporting, if not the majority of them, if not all of them, have at one point been deeply sedated, likely for a prolonged period of time. So the risks of having had, had delirium are high. And so maybe they were, you say calm, but I wonder if they're maybe still having some hypoactive delirium. So they're still pretty lethargic, pretty out of it, or just so weak, mm-hmm. right? And they are in a more controlled environment. Maybe they're starting to come out of delirium. So I'm, I'm reflecting on these survivors that I've interviewed and what it's like for them to start to kind of realize that they're in the hospital, but they're still seeing dogs or demons running around. They're still trying to make sense of what's going on. Now they're being transported to somewhere else. And they're having this huge change of environment that you're talking about. And they're, if they don't understand what's going on, what is it like to suddenly... Do they think they're in a spaceship when they're in your, your truck? And do they think Mm -hmm. that they're going to be taken to jail? What do they think? And of course they get agitated and panicked. So it's, it's actually filling me with panic to think of responding to that delirium or that agitation, probably from delirium be with benzodiazepines that will just put them down deeper. They've already suffered so much. And then what happens in LTAC when they have one nurse to 20 patients? Who, how does that help their trauma? Well, I,
1: No, a- absolutely. And, and it's one of those, you know, I mean, I, I don't do a lot of critical care transport now just because of the, the environment that I've been in for the last year, but, you know, back when I did do a lot of it and when I was working on QI and, and training and, and all that, One of the things that, you know, I really push doesn't matter whether, you know, you're picking somebody up who's been on the vent for 10 minutes or been on the vent for 10 days, you know, it's always going with that, that, you know, if you're going to use, you know, pharmacologic methods, it's going with that analgesia first and, you know, kind of trying to break that whole benzodiazepine chain. It's just so different in the transport environment and in the, the ambulance environment than it is anywhere, anywhere else in in ICU, in ER. And a lot of that is just from a patient's point of view, you know, like, like I said, it's a completely different uh, environment. That's not nearly as, as controlled or, or as regulated and yeah, it's got to be tough for the, for the patient.
0: For the 30 minutes, hour, whatever quick period of time you have with them. Like you've said, the studies show that that can greatly impact their outcomes, their mortality, their oh, delirium, I- all of it. And yet I had never thought about what does EMS use? And when people say that patients show up to the ICU delirious, granted, they'd be encephalopathic from lots of things, but oh, yeah. now I'm wondering what did they use in the ED? What do they use in the field? Are we recognizing that delirium and clearing it out right away? Or are we just adding on more of what caused it? And how much would that impact our outcomes if we really collaborated like this, if we unified and said, we all know that benzodiazepines increase mortality, we are all part of this problem. We're all accountable for it. How can we change together?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's a great, it's a great place to start. So you actually just said something interesting right there. You said you don't know what the ED or what the prayer hospital use that actually, so in, you know, from, from my perspective, that kind of takes me back a little bit. I thought that, you know, you guys, especially since you have access to all these other records, I mean, I'll go through and I'll read what's sent, you know, while I'm, I'm, I'm in the ambulance and, you know, that'll, that'll kind of help to, to alter my expectations and, and, and how I'm treating the the patient. But, you know, if you guys, if, if that's something that you just don't know that, that kind of strikes me as, as I I, I get it typically when, you know, every time I've given over a, a handoff report to somebody, you know, going up to the ICU, who's vented, there's a bunch of different people there. You're trying to do everything that you need to do with, you know, getting them set up, getting them appropriately positioned, getting, you know, everything that that's super important for ICU care. And here I am, I'm spitting off some stuff that you're half listening to. And again, I don't, I don't mean it. Yeah. events by that, but it's just, it, it, it's the way that it goes. And well, you know, if I say, oh,
0: my connection with EMS is a little bit different. So right. you brought, you've given them, if you've intubated in the field, right. Mm-hmm. You've already right. given them medications, you brought them to the ED. I right. don't know that we're always aware by the time they get to the ICU, what was given in the field, as far as intubation, a lot of times what we hear is they were intubated in the field. And we don't right. think about what was given intubation. We do hear what was given the ED, but if it's like a tertiary hospital, so we've gone from EMS to ED now to a totally different facility, we've played telephone down the, down the road. And I think mm-hmm. my culture, like I am going to care about what was given. I'm going to want to know what was given for sedation. I won't necessarily know what was given for intubation in the field. I don't know that I've, right. I, right. that's it, part of a protocol to really know.
1: And, and, and it varies so much, even within States, it varies so much by county or by agency. You know, for for example, out in in Washington, where I was at, we had the option of uh, atomized ketamine and Versed for induction. The next county over had the option of. I believe all they had was either versed or uh, propofol. But all of the medics out there, they were uncomfortable with propofol. So pro- propofol never got used. Oh. And their dosage strategy on the next county over was actually what I would consider. I mean, if you're going to use versed for induction, which I would never recommend, but if you're going to use it, it's got such a, a variable dose response curve that the ideal dose is, is actually going to be a little bit closer to, to one mig per kid for for induction with Versed, if you go and you actually look, yeah, back in the, uh, back in the eighties, when they, when Versed was kind of just coming, just coming out, they went and they did the studies, your ASA category uh, one and two patients in order to achieve adequate depth of anesthesia required somewhere between 0. 0.3. And I think it's like 1.1 or 1.3 mix per of Versed, your ASA category three and four patients required, I think it was between 0. 0.8 and two mix per kg of Versed and I'll, I'll, I can edit that and look up the, I don't have the studies in, in front of me, but I'll definitely include those as well. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's something ridiculous like that. I mean, one of my, I mean, I, there's a million reasons I hate Versed and anybody that knows me will, they know that that's kind of my thing. But one of the reasons is, is exactly that. Such an unreliable drug. So, you know, you may end up, if you give them two and a half to, to 10, which is kind of what I've seen as, you know, most uh, ER docs and, and most EMS providers that will use Versed for induction, that's typically the dose range that they'll, that they'll use is, oh, give me um two and a half and 200 a sucks or give them, you know, five and a hundred a rock. And, you know, yeah, you may get a little bit of, of that amnesia, but Really, I'm wondering, are you really actually sedating them, or are you setting them up for delirium in a couple of ways to where they're going to remember feeling a little loopy, like they had one or two drinks, all of a sudden they couldn't move, and somebody's shoving stuff, you know, down their throat. I mean... In my view, an, an unpleasant, and you can please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on this, but an unpleasant, you know, experience like the act of actually being intubated, you need sedation of some sort Absolutely. for, for that. Yes. Exactly. I mean, honestly, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, you need general anesthesia for that. Even if, you know, everybody gets all medical legal and worried about, oh, we can't do general anesthesia without an ASA board certification. No, you're doing general anesthesia when you're doing an induction. You're not keeping them there for very long, but you're you're getting them to that adequate plane of, of anesthesia. And what I think we're doing with a lot of people when we underdose, even when we give, you know, 10 of Versed for the induction, what I think we're doing with a lot of people is we are giving them some vaguely dissociated Weird memories of, you know, being paralyzed and pain and all of this. And we are just going, you know, we're going up to the, you know, 20 foot diving board and pushing them off, you know, into into this delirium cascade because we're a we're using the wrong med. But if you're going to use the wrong med, use the wrong med in the right dose. <laughs> you know, um,
0: And in the right series, but, I mean, uh, I, uh, paralytics are, are not the standard drug of choice for intubations. We can usually do propofol no. accommodate, fentanyl. We can, we can do those at least for the right. and walk and ICU. So people say, well, we start continuous sedation because we use paralysis for every patient that we intubate, which must be just, you know, part of their protocol. But I don't know that that's, that should be the exception there. And when it's exception, it is necessary but how much could we avoid and how much better could we sedate people if we weren't paralyzing them?
1: So, so that's interesting. The vast majority, let's see in my entire career, and I've done a lot of intubations, but in my entire career, I think I've only done maybe 30 medication only, like a, you know, induction only intubations. And the reason for that is in the kind of scenario that, that I'm in, you know, if I'm doing an elective urgent or an emergent intubation, I want to avoid hypoxia. And I often don't have time to properly pre-oxygenate people. Mm -hmm. I can do my best. And, you know, I've discussed ad nauseum elsewhere, the, the strategies that I use for that and, you know, to optimize them. But what I really want is I want the best view possible and my best chance at reduced uh, time in laryngoscopy and I want a first pass success. Yeah. And for me, that's, that's always been, you know, look, I'm, I'm going to end up paralyzing just about all of my patients. I'm not a huge fan of succinylcholine largely because we get very, very limited Histories in there. I don't have a serum potassium. Right. Um, I don't know if they've got a history of hyperthermia, and if they've got a history of malignant hyperthermia, cool. I'm gonna recognize it, and I'm 45 minutes to an hour and a half away from dantrolene. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's a lot of of you know downstream effects that 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 kind of go with the decision to use succinylcholine, and. It's probably because the only agents that I've had available to me in the field are, you know, Versed, Atomidate, and Ketamine. Ketamine is probably the best out of all of those in terms of muscle relaxation and actually allowing an adequate view. But even then, it's not it's not a great view. Atomidate, you're almost guaranteed to get some masseter spasm or or some trismus at least in in the way that that I've used it. And Versed, like I said, I don't I don't touch it if I can avoid it.
0: If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more.
1: So, yeah, I end up um, actually giving a lot of my, my, my patients, it's typically, you know, 95% of the time, it's a ketamine and rocuronium induction, I rock at the higher dosage at about one, one meg per gig, because I want that quick onset, you know, to paralysis, I don't want to sit and wait for the two to three minutes it's going to take if we use, you know, the 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5. So, you know, it's a trade off. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, well... You know, I guess in, in selected patients, maybe succinylcholine might be appropriate so I can try to wean the sedation, but then it goes into, okay, well, if I'm putting them on this cheap, very, you know, rough for lack of a better term vent, they're going to be upset anyway. So paralysis actually ends up um, benefiting us because a lot of the times, unless we're intubating for airway protection or intubating for some sort of, you know, respiratory pathology. And we want, especially in the peri-intubation period, we want good control over the patient's ventilatory status, because that is you know, we can kind of precisely dial in. It's easier when you have ABGs. I've unfortunately never worked in a system that I I could draw an ABG, but, you know, we've got other ways I can approximate, you know, CO2 off of, you know, entitled capnography and, and all that. And, you know, I can kind of make an educated guess at what the pathology is and kind of titrate for that. But, you know, it's it's kind of a gamble because we want that tight control so that the patient's not over breathing and not kind of undoing the help that we're trying to do. So it gets really complex, you know, in the emergency scenario, you know, in the ED or pre-hospitally.
0: Absolutely. And you're in a totally different setting. This is not a controlled Mm -hmm. environment. You have very little support. You've got that one shot, you've got an emergency, you, that Mm -hmm. is, A very appropriate setting for everything that you're talking about, and I'm not—I don't hate all sedation. I hate Mm -hmm. the way that we use it. So you, (laughs) sorry, you're uh, you're mentioning almost like a procedural sedation. Even I would—I would would say that the transportation of a patient on a transport vent during that kind of emergency—that sounds like a procedure, and that's not going to have so that period of time on ketamine. That's nothing compared to that period, like weeks on ketamine or weeks on Versed or days. And, but yet you're still trying to have stewardship over their long-term outcomes. And so by avoiding Versed and being aware of delirium, I appreciate that because you're making it so much safer for the patient down the road. So though, you have an appropriate use for sedation. You're also using sedation appropriately and making wise choices.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those, you, you don't want to over sedate. And a lot of the times what, you know, we, as, as, you know, in the emergency setting, like to think is the, um, you know, the, the sedation, you know, the, the adverse effects of, of over sedation pretty much we think of it as, oh, well, if you sedate them too much, they're gonna have a human dynamic collapse or hemodynamic instability. And it extends a lot more than just that. It extends into you know the, the risks for delirium, the risks for atrophy, the risks for prolonged weakness. You know, it's it's kind of rare that will redose paralysis. But no, I, I completely agree. I, I think that. And unless you know you've got like a Hamilton T1 or one of the real you know luxury transport ventilators, um, thinking of it like procedural sedation is is probably realistically going forward going to be the the best route and we really need to plan. And what I'd like to see is I'd like to see EMS work together with the ICUs to plan this procedural sedation so that it can be the best for the, you know, for the patient. Absolutely avoiding paralysis, avoiding benzos. A lot of times this is it's a little outside of the scope of this, this podcast, but you know, we don't have access to the drugs that I would love to see available you know drugs like remifentanil and dexmedetomidine that I think would be absolutely appropriate for the transport environment but there's simply Cost prohibitive Mm. for us to stock, so maybe planning for that kind of procedural sedation and having those meds available for providers to use, and maybe switch them over to something like you know, hey, for this transport, you know, here, uh, here's remifentanil, here's dexmedetomidine, here's remifentanil and propofol, whatever you know your preferred method or whatever you think is going to be best for the patient, have that stuff ready for us because we are more than happy to listen to everything that you guys you know have to have to say you know these patients far better than than we do and if you guys have a plan that'll help us to reduce the you know reduce delirium we'd be more than happy to, happy to fall. We'd be happy to you know, chip in and, and recruit our thoughts as well. But often when we're kind of left to, left to our own devices, the majority of the, the country for sedation, it's typically benzodiazepine only or benzodiazepine you know, opioid combination. And that's kind of what we have to fall back on without something specific from the sending or, or receiving hospital.
0: So you have a culture of starting delirium. The ICU has a culture of <laughs> treating no, but the ICU has a culture of uh-huh. treating delirium with sedation. And then maybe been, their sedation has been lightened up. And then mm-hmm. you're reinducing delirium on the way to LTAC. And I think LTACs also are inclined due to their workload and maybe their culture as well to continue benzodiazepine use for that agitation delirium. So I think LTAC needs to be part of the discussion too. If you're transporting these people to LTAC, you're biting off the grenade or causing more explosions and then handing it off to them. Mm-hmm. They might have a word to say about it as well, right? Cause they're the ones that have to clean up the mess. All of our messes.
1: Well, I- yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so I'm, I'm talking about, you know, yeah, either going to LTAC or even, you know, going from community ER to tertiary care, or, you know, ICU to ICU, basically, anytime there's the transport of a patient on a ventilator. Thinking of it, yeah, in terms of procedural sedation and getting both facilities and the transport team involved is, is going to be the best option. And again, you know, there are some phenomenal transport vents out there that can be just as comfortable as you know the vents in the ICU. The thing is, it's not realistic for most places to have those vents and and to use them. It would be awesome if it was, but it's just it, it's cost prohibitive. So you discussion outcomes. with your local.
0: Well, you could change outcomes so much by mm-hmm. choosing to do presidex dexmethylendotamine mm-hmm. instead of verse set in that moment for those that twenty minute drive. You could spare so much harm by having that available to you. Who do you need? Absolutely. To do? So you've influenced change in different places that you've worked. How has that come about, and what barriers have you faced?
1: So you know, it's I'm, I'm pushy. That's how that's come about. Um, I. I, I, right. Exactly. So, you know, when, when I was, when I was first starting, it was, it was one of those, I would, I would try to, you know, consistently advocate for, okay, look, I'm, I'm not happy with, with, with how this process is going. And I would try to take it up initially with the, you know, providers at bedside at the, at the sending to try to, you know, get something done for this patient. Um, After that, I tried to take things up to, to management. And, you know, unfortunately the vast majority of places management is, is they're very interested in, in better clinical outcomes, but they're also very interested in paychecks that bounce. And sometimes, you know, getting everything that we would like is not really realistic from a budget standpoint and i mean you you've been around you've been in medicine long enough probably everybody in here listening has been in medicine long enough we all know that politics are a thing and a lot of times ideas that would be very beneficial get hung up because of of politics so, you know, for example, like trying to get certain things switched around when I was working, at, you know, doing training and in, in QI rather than kind of frontline as a as a provider for a company that did a lot of critical care transports. A lot of the resistance that I would run into is the ICU was largely uninterested in hearing from us unless it was to say, oh, hey, we can actually be 30 minutes early for that, you know, for that transport. Or you know, basically right now, I think the way that is viewed in, in a lot of of areas. And and again, I'm this I'm, I'm painting with a very broad brush. Some areas have phenomenal working relationships and those really all, all it would take is, you know, a little bit of a conversation about, you know, Hey, well, so this is what we're doing on the way. Um, what do you guys think about that? What What do you guys think about maybe, you know, we can try to reduce our benzodiazepine use, excuse me, you know, can we get a program where we can, you know, get some dexmedetomidine from you guys for these patients or, you know, you know, w- would you mind working with us a little bit on this? The other way to kind of really affect change is, you know, the EMS systems in and of themselves right now, we in EMS have a, have a culture of benzos first and you know, Oh, well sedation, that's what benzos are for, or that's what, you know, a sedative is for. And from all the research that, that that I've read and everything that I've looked into going with a more analgesia first modality can really help to not only reduce the incidences of of delirium, but reduce the overall sedation requirements and keep people, you know, nice and and happy and much more aware and able to be, you know to just overall, what's the word i'm I'm, I'm looking for to just o- have an overall you know, better experience that's going to lead to in the end, you know, less delirium.
0: Yeah, I think that I understand those discussions with critical care are difficult. (laughs) That's -hmm. what I do all the time is try to bring the research (laughs) to attention and be convincing. And I think from your side, you can make the argument that supporting your culture change within your discipline will make the ICU team's job easier. But ICU needs to understand what delirium is. I think there's a lot of lack of education in that department. But once I understand and, what delirium is, how lethal it is, how much work it is, they're going to be very interested in preventing it. If they're, if they're wanting to keep patients awake and calm the ventilator, then they're going to want to help people not bring them delirious to their door.
1: Absolutely. And, and there's also, I mean, if you think that, you know, uh, delirium is, is, you know, something that needs to be educated on and the critical care of in in EMS and even in critical care transport it's just something that we don't talk about and you know like i had alluded to earlier it's largely because we don't see a lot of that long term sequelae and a lot of uh, of the, the long term effects of what we do and the biggest kind of culture change that i think that would be most beneficial you know for for us would be getting used to the idea that what we do, you know, matters beyond the time that we have the patient and, and it's got those long-term effects. I, I know a lot of providers and, and a lot of my colleagues that have that mentality that, well, you know, oh hey, I, I got them alive to the emergency department, I did my job, and well he, he, yeah but not really, you know, you, you save them for that moment. We, but You we,
0: also increase their risks of dying later. It,
1: exactly. Exactly. And I mean, this, this is an argument that's, you know, I think all of kind of resuscitation and the emergency med really to, to take to heart. And I'm not going to bring up epinephrine and cardiac arrest in this, but you know, there's, there's, There's a whole big culture thing beyond just the delirium. When you look at a lot of these treatments that we're using in in emergency med, yeah, we get dramatic results and it makes things a little bit better for us in the moment. But why are we looking at these, I'm gonna borrow a a term from the uh, the late uh, Dr. John Hines. Why are we looking at at BSE, bullshit surrogate endpoint data? Why aren't we looking at patient important outcomes? And that's a huge thing that I, I think the, you know, incidence of, of delirium, the prevalence of delirium and the harm that it causes could be a great catalyst and a great kind of concrete example of something that EMS and the emergency department and the critical care transfer teams and the, you know, community and critical access ICUs can all kind of get on board as a kind of a concrete example of, well, hang on, let's take a look at the bigger picture overall, rather than what's going to be best, most convenient in the moment for, for a lot of things.
0: Oh, Jeff, you have captured the essence of this podcast (laughs) (laughs) to look at the big accountability. (laughs) No, we, as we humanize our disciplines at whatever point we're touching a patient, we need to see them for who they are as a person, As their lives as a whole and be darn sure that we're doing everything in our power to make sure that they survive and thrive after they leave our hands. Thank you so much for all you're doing out there. Keep up the good fight. Let's work together to help change the culture and bring in that big picture. I appreciate everything that you're doing. And you are good luck with medical school.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm I'm thrilled to be on here. I'm I'm thrilled to, you know, kind of, you know, hopefully help you guys get a, at least a little bit of a window into, to what it's like. And, you know, if you guys, you know, anybody that's listening, if you, if you get a moment, you know, please, next time you're, you're sending out or receiving a patient, take a couple of minutes, talk to, talk to your local providers because we're, we're very receptive to opening up that, that dialogue. And, you know, we want what's best for the patients, just like you want what's best for the patients. And kind of, I think coming to together on some common ground like that would be, would be an amazing thing.
0: I had yeah, never thought about that. I think when, especially LifeLight brings someone and they're on a versed drip, we quietly roll our eyes but why not say, how do you feel about Versed? Do you have other options? What is available? What do we need to do to bring in policy changes? What, how can we make better agents available to you? I, I had never thought about actually communicating that. No, rather I was passive aggressive yeah. and just said, well, great. We need to clean that up now. But you're <laughs> right. Everyone wants to do the right thing. We just need to communicate together and work together.
1: Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Jeff. Yeah, thank you.
0: If you want to join in on the conversation, Leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.